Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Maple Avenue Baptist Church. We're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah this morning. And so if you're feeling like the text has a bit of a seasonal feel to it, that's a little mismatched with the weather outside that's not particularly frightful, know that we're going through the entire book, chapter by chapter, and so this is where God has us this morning. This is where God wants you to be dwelling. So consider this an early Christmas present. Um, we'll dig into, the, into God's word together. We're going to be unwrapping Isaiah 9. There's no more jokes like that, just so you know. <laughs> Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? But there will be no more, no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this passage and for this time this morning to let it wash over us out of darkness, light. Out of anguish, joy. Out of gloom, glory. Amen. So I am so thankful for our time that we've uh, been spending in Isaiah as a church. I'm grateful that we're working through the entire book, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This passage is so familiar to us, and so when we come upon it in its full context we rediscover it. Because we have to admit that reading through Isaiah can feel a little bit like a march through the desert. And so when Isaiah makes a pit stop at an oasis like this to sustain us through the crossing, we realize just how important it is. So I hope that this morning we can drink thirstily. Here's the quick recap for those just tuning in to remember where we left off. 
It was a cliffhanger of sorts. If you want, you can look at the last verse of chapter 8, where we were, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a dark cliffhanger. We left off with this picture of hopelessness. This is what's in store for God's people. Because, if you recall last week, they followed the wrong king. They've put their hope in the Assyrian military might rather than in the might of their God who has always been there with them. They had no need for God. They forged their own path, persisted stubbornly in their own wisdom and their ability to broker a good outcome for themselves. And so this is where it was leading them. If you recall the situation Isaiah is speaking into, as Pastor James outlined in the intro to our series, Isaiah is addressing the sin that sets in in a time of ease, a time similar to the one in our day in our country. But no more. Isaiah is foretelling the Assyrian exile that is coming, the gloom of anguish, the thick darkness. God is going to let them be taken back into exile, back to where they started. And they will know that they've squandered all of God's blessings away. Most of you know what anguish feels like. It's that extreme distress that grabs a hold of your guts and squeezes and makes you feel like you might double over and then your mind starts to reel, trying to grasp at a single thought, a single option, step forward, but eventually your mind just goes blank and all that's left is despair. Thick darkness. That's where we left off. So the very first word that we're longing to read is the one that we are granted, but, praise God, we're going to unpack what comes next in the passage, but brothers and sisters, we can breathe. There is a way forward. It's like a shot of adrenaline to the heart, right as we're slipping away. So the passage itself really is broken into two uh, passages. The first verse is Isaiah's introduction, and then verses 2 to 7 are his oracle. But I think it makes more sense to break it up um, thematically, since the first verse, his introduction, and the first verse of the oracle, verse 2, actually covers the same theme. So let's do it this way. First, we'll look at verse 1 and 2 together. Into the darkest gloom shines the brightest light. Then we'll look at verse 3, out of the deepest anguish, pure joy bursts forth. And then we'll look at verses 4 to 7, three reasons for joy. We'll see them in verse 4, verse 5, and then verse 6 and 7. All right, so let's get started. Verse one, or Section 1, into the darkest gloom shines the brightest light. If there's a unified message that binds the Old Testament together. Surely one of the main points is this. After sin caused a split between God and his people, God made a covenant with them to provide them with a land of their own where they could dwell together with him. But 
they immediately, consistently, and stubbornly refuse to uphold their part of the covenant while God continuously, consistently, and faithfully upholds his part of the government. You see, again and again, God's people turn away from God's plan for them towards the pursuit of their own impulses and desires until, until the path that they forge leads to so much mess to accumulate that they can't even stand under the weight of it. And then they cry out to God. And it, it brings this memory to mind, a memory I have of being a child visiting some family in England. We were hiking in the Lake District um, with my, my father, his cousin Paul, and my great uncle Alfred. Paul had a little dog, a Cairn Terrier, and his name was Rufus. And as we were hiking, we came to a stile to climb over one of those dry stone walls. And the dog was too small to even you know, climb over that. He needed to be lifted over. So we all climbed over. And uh, we saw on the other side, there was a clear beaten path that went straight through the field over to another stile back over the wall. But we also saw what was being enclosed in this particular field. There was a bull in the far corner, down the hill at some distance, so we were fine. We could clearly walk through. But Rufus caught sight of the beast, and he ran off after him, barking at the bull. Um, the bull was rather unfazed at first, but you see the... 15-pound dog persisted rather stubbornly in his antagonizing barking, so he finally did get the attention of the 1,500-pound bull. And so as the bull turned and started towards him, Rufus spooked, and he ran away, and the bull decided to give chase. The dog, now realizing the error of his ways, was looking for shelter, for protection, maybe salvation even. So he came and cowered behind us. <laughs> the last thing I recall on my mind was the salvation of the dog. He was cute, but I would have happily punted him across the field <laughs> if it would have kept the bull away from me. You see, you need to be more discerning about who you put your faith in than Rufus. I was not his savior. In any case, we scrambled across the field. Someone lifted Rufus out, I can't remember who, and we were all out on the other side and safe. We were fine. But you see, Israel is not fine. They've been barking at the bull now ever since the Exodus, overconfidently forging their own path, ignoring God's good plan for them, and then when their sin catches up to them, when the bull turns around and comes after them, that's when they cry out to God. And to be fair, how many of us go barking at our own bulls? How many of us stray from God's path because it's just too straight and narrow, looking for something a little more exciting? Our sinful hearts give birth to all sorts of self-aggrandizing plans, so we stray from God's good plan to take on a bull and find our overconfident, self-reliant bark turn to a yelp of despair when the bull turns on us. Because when we abandon those around us to follow our heart, to pursue our dreams, we're barking at a bull. When we build ourselves up to tear someone else down, 
we're barking at a bull. When we start living on the world's terms and we believe that to live a fulfilled life, we need to follow the mantra YOLO. When we neglect the less fortunate, singing Paul Anka's anthem to self-exaltation my way, relegating God's good plan for us to the background, we're barking, we're barking at the bull. And then when the bull turns to face us and we realize the emptiness of what we were pursuing and take stock of everything that we squandered away to get to this dead end, all the opportunities, the relationships, all the time, when it's all gone, when the good times are over and the facade that we carefully cultivated comes crashing down and the sin is exposed, then where do we turn? In that gloom of anguish, in that thick darkness, then what? Well, you see, that's when we turn from chapter 8 to chapter 9 and we see this utterly unexpected promise that there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. Darkness gives way to light, despair to hope. There's hope for all who have made a mess. That's you, that's me. Praise God, this passage is, this is just the first half of the first verse. The, the second half of the first verse tells us this. It tells us about the northern part of Israel. This is um, the part that neighbored the foreign nations. This is the part that's by the sea and provided an entrance to invading armies. Galilee. It was considered the doorstep to the enemy, the doormat for oppressors. And this particular downtrodden multicultural region due to its proximity to foreign nations, this part of Israel for some reason is singled out. And Isaiah prophesies that Galilee will become glorious. That's quite a promise for this region. History will show that they bore the brunt of the Assyrian oppression, yet God will not forget about them. Remember that in your darkest days. God doesn't forget. He delights in stories of redemption like that of Galilee. And we'll see some additional relevance to this particular promise for you and I shortly. But then starting in verse 2, the oracle starts. And in this oracle, Isaiah prophesies what he prophesies already flies forward and puts the Assyrian exile into the past. He's using the past tense. He's flying forward and looking past the gloom of this impending dark season and giving Israel hope that it's actually not a dead end. It is not where their story ends. The darkness of the exile will give way to a blazing bright light. You see, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And there's more. This is our second section. Out of the deepest anguish, pure joy bursts forth. So let's look at verse 3. We're told, you have multiplied the nation. God's people, the remnant, what's left of them after the exile, 
the stump of the cut-down tree is growing. Visually, I, I think of Israel as a bonfire and the exile sort of scattering the burning logs. And then the ensuing oppression is stomping on those logs to put the fire out. And when it looks like the flames have been completely quenched, God's breath will revive them again. These embers will catch and spread. And if we look at this, we see the word nation. We, we just had Galilee of the nations, and now we have, you have multiplied the nation. Israel is being multiplied with the nations, the Gentiles. And where better to do this than in the multicultural Galilee? But by extension, this oracle, it's not just for Israel at the time, it's for all of God's people. Just as God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's all of us on both sides of the cross. It includes all of God's covenantal people in our age, all who surrender to Christ. And so what is this multiplied nation doing? We're told it's rejoicing. Can you picture this complete reversal, the complete 180? We've now gone from darkness to light, from gloom to glory, to being, from being cut down to growing, and now from anguish to joy. And if you look at verse 3, the promise is for the kind of joy that you get to enjoy after the toil of farming in the harvest, the kind of joy you get after the toil of war in the plunder, the kind of joy that is brought about after a difficult, hard season. And so why are they rejoicing so? This is our third section. Isaiah now gives us three escalating reasons for joy. You can see them there at the beginning of verse 4, 5, and 6, they all start with the word for. Reason for joy number one is in verse 4. He will smash the yoke of the oppressor. And as Matthew 11 tells us, he will replace it with the yoke of Christ. And his yoke is easy and his burden light. He will smash the rod and staff of the oppressor. And as Psalm 23 tells us, he will replace them with the rod and staff of my shepherd. They comfort me. And this victory over the oppressor, we are told it will be done as it was in the day of Midian. So what does that mean? The victory over Midian goes back to Judges 6 and 7 where God defeated the invading oppressor, the Midianites, with a, an anti-hero, Gideon. Gideon was in the middle of hiding his crop in a wine press when he was called. He was hiding in the wine press so the Midianites wouldn't plunder it for him. And that's when he was called by God to um, rise up against Midian. And so he was, Gideon was absolutely a reluctant participant. Go back and read it. Very reluctant to participate in God's plan. But he does eventually raise an army, 32,000 people. And God whittles down this army. It's too many. 
he whittles it down to just 300 men. And not the 300 strongest. These are not 300 Spartans. These are 300 who happen to drink water by lapping it like a dog. It's weird. It's concerning to think that many people actually would drink water that way, but also it's a weird qualification that is not intended to prove their military superiority or their fighting prowess. The opposite. God's trying to prove that this victory is not going to be brought about by these guys. It can only be brought about by his strength. That's what it means when it says, as in the day of Midian. You understand, the defeat of Midian, God went out of his way to ensure it was crystal clear that it was his doing, his victory, not Gideon's. Why? Why was God so concerned that he got the credit? Could it be that he's egocentric? Is the atheist Stephen Fry right when he says that he's a narcissistic megalomaniac? Obviously not. He wants to free us. He wants us to know that he is the one freeing us. He wants to liberate us. He wants to liberate us from the Midianites, from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, from our real oppressor, sin and Satan. But there's something else he wants to liberate us from. He wants to liberate us from the burden of thinking we have to do this on our own strength. He wants to free us from the unrealistic expectation that we can do this. So stop trying to do it on your own strength. You, you can't will yourself out of your situation. You can't, by your own sheer strength, put your own sin to death. Nor can you save yourself from its consequences. You're only going to make a bigger mess. You're going to end up in a dark place, just riddled with anxiety when you realize that you're out of options. You're going to plunge from overconfidence to depression. Unless, unless it's not on you. Unless you have someone to hide behind when the bull finally turns on you. Someone to lift you up over the stile, out of the hostile field, and into safety. And God will deliver you from oppression. That's the first reason for joy, and it's a really good one. If you're not a follower of Christ today, first off, man, am I glad that you're here, but not to ambush you or call you out or to judge you, but just to let you know that Christ wants to pull you out of darkness. Turn to Christ and he will shine light into the darkness, the darkness that you know all too well because you're experiencing it right now, And if not, the darkness that you know is coming. We're all headed the same way. We know how this life ends. There's no avoiding 
the darkness at the end of this life. And there's only one who can shine light into that darkness. Turn to him. Turn to Christ. Reason two for joy. That's in verse five. He will end war. I love this. The boot of the tramping warrior. This kind of imagery. The invading army's boots and their blood-soaked uniforms will be burned to keep us warm. What a promise to a war-weary nation. It's another great reason for joy. One, he will defeat the oppressor. And two, he will end war. Let your mind dwell on this truth this week. Just meditate on it. Plumb the depths of this particular reason for joy. There's gold in this mind shaft. I mean, ask your kids for your thoughts. They might take, take it someplace you don't expect. It has profound implications. And that's our second reason for joy. What's our third reason for joy? We get to turn to verses six and seven. Reason for joy number three, a baby. My niece Amelia was born last week. When is a baby not a reason for joy? When we read Isaiah, we've talked about this before, we need to follow the bouncing ball, right? We need to keep track of when Isaiah's shifting gears. We have to discern whether he's talking about the immediate situation, the micro story, the overall arc, the macro story. We need to note the change in tense from future to past to present in our passage. We need to note the change in pronouns. Just in our passage this morning, he goes from her to he to they to you to us. For to us, a child is born. I have to quote Ray Ortland here. He says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. So good. What oppressor does this child defeat? It's not the Midianites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Nazis or the Russians. He defeats all oppression. Picture that young man in Tiananmen Square standing in front of that row of tanks. Except instead of individual tanks, each one is an entire army, an entire country's military might just standing in front of them, and he stops them all. We know that Isaiah now is zooming forward to address a larger audience, right? From the immediate audience who will soon be taken out of their own land of complacent, unrighteous affluence into a foreign land of oppression and slavery. And he's going to give them a sneak peek at the other side of that terrible season and telling them that God will save them out of that place. But this baby, this child for us, he helps us orient ourselves. This child picks up on the Isaianic clue from chapter 7. God signed the virgin-born child named Emmanuel. 
We know when this baby comes. This birth announcement has been made 700 years before the birth. Jesus is coming and he is the hope of Israel. He is the hope for all of us on both sides of the cross because he's still just as relevant to us today as he was to the Israelites. We're still just as prone to take credit for our victories and cast blame for our defeats. We're still prone to worship the provision rather than the provider because we still swing from overconfidence to depression. And what are we told of this child? We're told the government shall rest on his shoulder. I mean, that causes you to think about human governments. Our governments in this day, they tend to be defined by tumult, ever spinning out towards division. Human rulers divide and pit segments of the population against each other. Not all human rulers are equally bad, but they rely on the strength of their police, their armies. The strength of our government rests in the Halton police, the OPP, the RCMP, CSIS, their SWAT teams and their crowd control units, the Canadian Department of Corrections, the Canadian Armed Forces, the Royal Canadian Navy, the, Canadian, the Royal Canadian Air Force, even their special forces like JTF-2. You see, our rulers depend on that strength. And as a result, they reap dissension, demonstrations, riots, civil unrest, blockades, convoys, population control, imprisonment, terrorism, and war. It's not inherently political. It's just what happens in every country under political parties of all stripes. It's just how our governments operate. And I, I'm being hard on our governments. They're ordained by God. And it's a worthy cause to strive for better government. To strive for peace, for justice. But this child is born to us to relieve us from the burden of the government. It's such a relief. We're just so objectively bad at it. The government shall rest on his shoulder, no longer ours to bear. And who is this child? What is his name? His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a name. It's so rich. This name so comprehensively captures the fullness of who Christ is. It basically takes the whole New Testament to unpack this name, to truly reveal who Christ is. So I'm going to try to unpack it in a minute. This will not do it justice, but here goes. He is wonderful counselor. Christ is perfectly wise. His counsel is unparalleled. His plan for us is pure wisdom. And of course it is. He is mighty God. He made you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He has absolute power. He, he is sovereign over every aspect of his kingdom and every aspect of your life. He is everlasting father. He is a perfect provider, protector, advocate, 
an everlasting, unfailing, perfectly loving and caring father to his sons and daughters. You have 24-7 access to a good father. He's never not going to answer your call. He's prince of peace. He reaps not war, but peace. This is why the government should be on his shoulder and not ours. Peace in our country, in our land, in our relationships, in our families, in our churches, in our hearts. He's coming to reverse our sinful impulse to turn man into God by turning God into man. And in doing so, he will bring about peace between man and God. The Prince of Peace creates peace between us and God. In our sin, we are at war with God. But by taking on the punishment that we deserve from God on our behalf, Jesus creates peace between us and God. And through his resurrection, he ensures our peace is eternal. And that allows us to be at peace with each other. Christ rules a kingdom of peace. And his rule, his government, his peace will increase like an ever-expanding universe and it will never be reversed. It will never collapse. It will never end. We're told his office is king of Israel, the throne of David, the covenantal promised ruler of God's people on both sides of the cross. At the outset of this series, Pastor James told us the main message of Isaiah was to see the Holy One of Israel. Behold, the Holy One of Israel. Are you starting to see him? And what kingdom is his domain? The second half of verse 7 tells us it is a kingdom he will establish. So now, Isaiah is zooming even further ahead. All the oppressors of the history books, all the wars of the history of every nation, Isaiah is looking past all of those to a point in the future when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom once and for all, never to end, to be uphold forever with a righteousness that eludes us, with the justice that we crave yet are so incapable of delivering, to be upheld forevermore. What a source of hope. What a reversal from the exile we deserve, the judgment that Isaiah so relentlessly delivers. This promise is not made to people who have perfectly worshipped God. It's the complete opposite. It's made to those who have messed up so completely and so repeatedly. In other words, to us. It's an oasis in the desert. It's a kingdom of grace. And look at the final words of his passage. Is there any chance for us to claim that we are going to bring this about? No. And praise God, we could never pull it off. When you feel like you cannot give what God is asking of you, when God feels condemning and demanding, turn from chapter 8 to chapter 9 and get a right view of your God. He is the one who has promised to make you a way back to him. 
The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. The passion of the God of heaven's armies will accomplish this. So remember that first promise in verse 1? The promise of glory to return to Galilee. We've seen this promise being fulfilled. Would you turn with me to Matthew 4? We're going to look at verse 12 and following. Matthew 4 verse 12 starts like this. Now when he heard, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here he quotes our first verse of our passage, making it clear that this prophecy will be fulfilled, has been fulfilled by Christ at the very start of his earthly ministry over 700 years later. This promise is signed, sealed, delivered. It's money in the bank, good as gold. But are some of you still unsure that this promise is for you? I mean, how can you be sure that you can claim this promise for yourself? If you're still in Matthew 4, look at verse 17. It has the answer. Rather, it records Jesus' own answer to that question. From that time, Jesus began to preach. What was he preaching? Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it. That should have been my sermon. We would all be at the picnic. <laughs> repent. Stop barking at the bull. Return to God's good plan for your life. He will deliver you out of the bull's paddock into the next field, into the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And please make no mistake, I'm not speaking to non-Christians or those who are not at church this morning. This isn't a command for the world at large that you're somehow exempt from. As long as you're sinning, you better be repenting. In other words, if you are hearing my words right now, hear the words of Jesus and repent. When you think you've run out of things to repent of, repent of that. <laughs> when you feel condemned by a sin that you have repented of a hundred times, and yet it still has a hold on you, repent again. Grace will cover it all except that which remains unrepented of. So get low and repent. Humbly recognize that God does not love us more than those who are sleeping in right now because of anything we've done. Our getting out of bed doesn't count. We're just sinners saved by grace. Not saved because of anything that we've accomplished. And honestly, how will the world repent and turn to the gospel if they do not see the church repenting? Surrender every aspect of your lives over to the gospel. Dare to believe in this wonderful counselor, in this everlasting father, in mighty God, in the prince of peace, the one who has 
all wisdom, who can provide all we need, who has the power and authority to do all he promises, and the one who promises perfect peace. Surrender it all to Christ. Let go of your way, your own ambitions. Whatever has a grip on your heart, whatever you're barking at the bull, you can't count on any of those things. They're birthed from a sinful heart. Your career, your friends, your bank account, your family, your house, your possessions, your accomplishment, whatever they mean to you today, they'll be meaningless to you when the bull turns on you and the diagnosis hits, the market crashes, the war breaks out, the relationship fails, when you're sick, estranged, lost, when the sin is exposed, or simply when you're dying. And it's just down to you and God. There's only one ruler over your life who is trustworthy, whose influence is like an ever-expanding universe growing within you and overflowing out of you in righteousness and justice and in peace. And that's not you. It's the one who is birthed from the zeal of the God who made you. His passionate for, for you, his passionate love in the person of his son who came to us as a child to die for our sins when everything else around you can give way at any moment. Repent. For there's a kingdom of grace at hand waiting for you. This world, it's on the way out. Turn to Jesus, the prophesied light in the darkness, the glory out of the gloom, the freedom from oppression, the joy from anguish, the glory out of gloom, the ever-increasing peace from war, the life from death. This kingdom is at hand. So turn to Jesus. Would you pray with me now? Dear Heavenly Father, as we prepare to take communion this morning, please hear our yelps of repentance. Even now, Lord, my flesh rejoices in the attention I garner when I step behind your pulpit. I feel my pride try to wrestle your glory for myself. Please forgive us for our attempts to usurp your glory for our holding back so much of our love, so much of our trust, so much of our life from you. Lord, please do not hold our fickle hearts to account, but thank you for Christ. Thank you that your kingdom is at hand. Amen.